We clearly waited too long to come to Vancouver. <laughs> Thank you. Amazing. So uh, a quick rundown on, on this evening's event. Uh, there's a couple microphones set up. We will be getting to questions from you guys a little later on. We're going to chat for, you know, however long we feel like it, but we want to make sure there's time for questions after that. Uh, so good to see you both again. Yeah, likewise. I'm, I'm really enjoying uh, kind of this series of events, and I thought today we'd start off in a different direction that's all about me. No. Uh, it's actually a question that I think both of you are going to have really good input on. I did a debate a couple weeks ago against a, a preacher who seemed to have not only no understanding of science, uh, but no appreciation for it, didn't care, didn't care if he was fairly representing it. As a matter of fact, I think there's a chance you might have uh, stood up and accosted him at some point because he literally stood in front of me and said, oh, that evolution stuff, it's not like anybody's ever banged sticks and rocks together and got a puppy. <laughs> he said this twice during the debate. The first time, uh, we're in a debate structure, so I'm trying not to interrupt. You know, I need to follow the rules of the debate. And the second time, I just halted and jumped right in, and I was like, you're right, that's never happened, and no scientist has ever portrayed anything like that happening. And luckily, we were in high school, and the students seemed to get it. But how do we work past not only just willful scientific ignorance, but this, we seem to have built communities where there, we haven't instilled any appreciation for it or any appreciation to treat it reasonably. Mm. Let's, let's just throw up a straw man and call it nonsense. I don't often quote Tony Blair. <laughs> but he said, education, education, education. Um, there is staggering ignorance of what evolution is all about. And, hello? I think we're, we're living in a simulation right now and it's, it's failing us. So, so, Richard, what do you do with this underlying misunderstanding of, of the role of randomness in evolution? Can you, can well, you inoculate um, us against that problem? Mutation is random, only in one sense, actually. Mutation is random only in the sense that it's not directed towards improvement, specifically. It's non-random in other senses. Uh, natural selection is quintessentially non-random. That's exactly what natural selection is. Anybody who thinks that you could possibly explain the beauty and the elegance of living things by some kind of random process would be stark raving bonkers. Anybody who thinks that we think that has got to be stark raving bonkers. Of course it's not random. The whole point of the scientific enterprise in this case is to find an escape from randomness, is to find a, a solution to the problem of how you get these staggeringly non-random things which are living creatures out of the laws of physics. And that's what, that's what we're about. I mean, to explain that by postulating a creator, now that is in almost resorting to randomness. That's saying that, that complexity, non-randomness is another word for complexity, comes into being spontaneously by sheer luck. God just happened to be there. What natural selection, what evolution does, is to explain how you get there from simple beginnings, which are easy to understand, 
and how you work up gradually, gradually, gradually up a kind of ramp of improvement until you get to complexity. That's the whole point. Uh, we're trying to escape from randomness and natural selection is the only escape that anybody has ever suggested that will work. You know, it strikes me, you know, I was, I was thrilled that students, this was in a public high school, although I believe it was a charter school, uh, mm -hmm. because it's, it's going to be unlikely that a regular state-sponsored public school is going to invite me in to debate a preacher, uh, although it was a debate class. But I was, I was inspired that the students seemed to catch on to what was going on, so at least I, I'm, I'm a little optimistic that they were reasonably educated on the subject. But how do we deal with adults, this minister, uh, he's not going to go back to school. He's not going to pay any attention uh, to what, us. And what did he speaking. actually say? I, I didn't quite hear the, cat, the final word of what he said. He portrayed evolution as if scientists were saying that you bang sticks and rocks together and you get a puppy. That sort of ridiculous over the top. <laughs> so that's going to be a meme, that face right there. I'm just lost for words. Um, Although, truth be told, the, the details of procreation are almost that strange. <laughs> I mean, if you've ever had a child, and I mean, it, it could not be more alien. The, if we watched a horror movie, and this is how the aliens produced their offspring, it could not be made stranger than it is. That was not an anti-sex tirade, by the way. That was just... If anyone thinks that the great majority of scientists are so utterly idiotic and naive that they think that, what that the way you get life is by banging sticks together and stones together, I mean, doesn't it give him pause to think that actually the vast majority of scientists have uh, a fully coherent theory that fills library shelves and volumes of books of, of, about it. If it was that simple, if we were just banging sticks together, that's not the way it would work. But what do you do with the, the underlying improbability of the whole process getting started in the first place? The, the yeah. to tornado going through a junkyard yeah. and assembling a fully working 747 the, argument. The, the first step, the, the origin of the first self-replicating molecule, the origin of the first gene, that was a necessary first step before natural selection could get started. And that is a step that nobody has yet solved. There are quite a lot of theories about it. Um, we may never know for certain, because it happened a very long time ago. Uh, we know the kind of thing that must have happened. And that is a big barrier. That is one of the main questions that remains. Once that's happened, that, that was a fairly simple start. Once that's happened, then the mm. whole panoply of life, the whole branching, complexifying beauty of life then gets, then gets going. We do need a theory of the origin of life. But once that starts, then everything else follows uh, with great um, logic and persuasiveness. Hmm. And of course, until we get to the point where we have a good understanding, then the answer that we should give is we don't know yet, rather than pretending that we do and that right. there's some, you know, godlike so, governing force. Exactly. I mean, scientists are... Uh, yeah. We, we, we like to say we don't know because that gives us something to do. <laughs> it's incredibly good job security for the curious. One of the things that troubled me is 
having all of us have dealt with religious-minded individuals in debate-type formats. Uh, here's a preacher who knew nothing, uh, and it was uh, proudly on display. And there's a part of me that says, should this individual be allowed to speak to children at all? And yet I have to defend this idea of freedom of expression, that people get to share their ideas. And that puts us in a place where we're constantly in a battle of ideas. How badly, how badly informed should somebody be before we just stop paying attention to them and work on the people who perhaps are reachable? Well, the problem in that case is that you're, the, the preacher represents in the U.S., what, 35%, 45%, depending on what his convictions are uh, of the population. So it's, it's not, you, you have to, you can ignore the preacher, but you can't ignore the fact that a significant minority, and on some questions, a majority of Americans hold just patently absurd ideas. So it's the ideas that really matter. He knew nothing, but he was proud of knowing nothing, it, seemed, it sounds to me. In, a lot of us are ignorant of lots of things. I mean, I'm ignorant of very many things, and I'm sure you are as well. Um, but we don't... I've pontificate. never heard it put so nicely. We don't... <laughs> But we admit when we're ignorant, and we don't um, try to pontificate about things of which we know nothing. Whereas he, he was doing exactly that. In a way, it wasn't so much that... I don't think he thinks he's ignorant. I don't think he's proud of his ignorance. I think he thinks he's convinced he has the right answer, and that we are all engaged in a scientific fairy tale. So there's, there's an, like an extra layer of smug superiority mm. over the top of it, where he gets to dismiss the work of countless scientists uh, that have taught us the best current understanding of the diversity of life, and it gets to shrug it off with sticks and rocks. Well, and if, we, if we ever have to convene gatherings like this in hell, we'll know <laughs> we did something wrong. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure a part of that was in hell, but I maintain my composure. I mean, that, that really is the thing. That, that's what completely changes the equation. The moment you believe you are certain or even just have very good reason to believe that this life is just a, a way station on the way to some eternity that you could get very, very wrong or very, very right, depending on what you believe. It just, it just that, that being your master algorithm, that makes a mockery of every pretense to human knowledge, no matter how technologically useful it is. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if we cure cancer with some future biology and prayer has never worked. If you believe in heaven and hell, that, that really governs everything, it seems. In a way, I don't think I mind his believing what he believes. What I mind is his thinking we believe what he thinks we believe. Yes. Because <laughs> how could anybody be so stupid as to think that you can... He simultaneously presented a straw man of evolution and evolutionary scientists and anybody who fell into that, you know, I, I accept reality. Mm. I'm going to straw man you all with sticks and rocks. Now, we, we can laugh at it, and, you know, if you feel like laughing at it some more, by all means, there's been lots of discussion about uh, how best to engage on these, how much, 
for lack of a better phrase, how big of an asshole should you be? How much pushback should there be? How seriously should you take them? And quite frequently, someone will come up and present the idea that there are sophisticated theologians, that this preacher that I had a debate with is in one category, and some other academic, erudite theologians are in another category. Hmm. Is that the case? Well, there are sophisticated theologians who accept evolution, of course, and have no problem with that. And so they, their, our argument with them is a quite separate argument. Um, I, I, I have met sophisticated theologians who believe pretty astonishing things, like believing literally that Jesus turned water into wine. Um, and I thought sophisticated theologians had written all that stuff off and said, oh, no, that's just metaphor, that's just uh, a nice st- story. We don't really believe that in it anymore. But I have spoken to very, very highly qualified, sophisticated theologians, highly educated, uh, they accept evolution totally, but yet they think Jesus turned water into wine and walked on water and rose from the dead and was born of a virgin. Um, all very unscientific ideas, and still they call themselves sophisticated theologians. Well, first we should acknowledge that sophistication is better insofar as it means moderation and less of a commitment to the most dangerous ideas. But my problem with with so-called sophisticated theology is that no one ever admits where the sophistication is coming from. It's coming from a loss of faith in specific doctrines. I mean, it's getting hammered into them from the outside. So, So... it's coming from science and, and, and a modern conception of, of ethics, uh, you know, a, a universal conception of human rights, a, a sense of how unseemly it is to think that anyone by virtue of being born in the wrong place is going to spend eternity in hell just because they didn't happen to hear the, the good word from their, their parents. So, that, so they, they, they lose their purchase on those dogmas and yet they retain this conviction that, that Jesus was born of a virgin or was resurrected and will be coming back. And the, those are just the, it's, it's, a, it's a God of the gaps argument in certain cases, but it's, it's a, you know, there's just certain questions where science hasn't yet closed the door to belief, and so they're putting all of their chips on those, those questions. We, we might have slightly different views of what a sophisticated theologian is. Yeah. Uh, which is probably a testament to how it's actually not sophisticated theology, but obfuscated theology. Uh, Because when I hear someone say, oh, you know, you take calls on the atheist experience and you get people who couldn't present a reasonable argument at all, why don't you take on real sophisticated theologians? And my answer is always tell them to call in, here's the phone number, they can call in whatever week they want. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, well, you know, oh, but here's this, you know, academic who's presented this particular version of the, of the ontological argument, the moral argument. And it's, you know, you've got Ray Comfort, the banana man, on one hand, and they pretend that there's something superior with regard to argumentation on the other. And at the many years I've been hosting the show and doing debates, what I find is what gets labeled as sophisticated theology is the exact same thing. It's not like the arguments of these sophisticated theologians are any more sound than the arguments of Ray Comfort. It's just that they're better speakers. They well, have they're better actually less sound in one way in that they don't... So the, the, the belief system is still anchored 
to a belief in revelation. They're still fixated on the texts, but they have ignored much of, of what seems untenable in the texts, and they don't have an argument about why that's okay. Because if, if God wrote any of these books, and nowhere in the book does God say, well, you could ignore the first half because I'm, now I'm getting to the good part. <laughs> it's, it's all God's words. It's actually a less principled position than fundamentalism. And that's, that's, that's why it's always, in my view, unstable in the face of fundamentalism, because the fundamentalist always has the advantage of saying, listen, I'm going to read the whole book. I'm going to take the most plausible interpretation of it. I'm going to read every word as literally as possible. And that always begins to fixate on more divisive, more doctrinaire, more irrational ideas. At least with a fundamentalist, you, you know what you're arguing against. Yeah. You're not yeah. arguing against a wet sponge. No, there's a, there's a, there's a um, it, it seems perverse to say it, but there's actually more integrity to the most fundamentalist position because it, there's, there's simply one irrational move, which is the, the belief that this book is perfect in every word. But the moment you believe that, well, then it, it, it is in fact rational to try to connect all the dots as, as reasonably as possible. But sometimes they really don't say anything. They say something like, well... God is the ground of all being, um, right. or God is the essence of isness, or something. Um, well, I, I have a soft spot for that kind of. Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't like the, the theistic version of it, but this is perhaps the, o- the only argument I can adduce in favor of, of so-called sophisticated theology, which is there's an experience that people have, you know, Christian contemplatives, say, or or. Um, really contemplatives in any tradition and, and have had for millennia, which does, start, it does provoke those sorts of noises from people. I mean, the, the problem is you, you, you get far enough into any of these contemplative traditions and everyone begins to sound like a Buddhist. And then they, you know, if you're in the 14th century uh, in Christendom, you know, the, the, the Inquisition shows up at your door, uh, as they did to Meister Eckhart, who happily died of natural causes just in time. But there's, there's an experience that people have of you know, losing their sense of self, say, and feeling at one with the universe or the world, uh, or having some kind of ethical, just a full ethical reboot of their hard drive where they feel love that they didn't know was possible, right? A, a kind of self-transcending love. Yeah, I'd enjoy that, I think, if I... Yeah, well, uh, yeah, so... I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not sure I would. We can help. And I'm not sure that it's a good... What, what, is, what is it that's a good thing about losing one's sense of self? Well, that's, a, that's a big question. Well, when you, when you look at just the mechanics of your own suffering, when you look at just what self-concern gets you psychologically, you begin to... You can begin to feel that most of your, your suffering is not actually, it's not directly tied to bad things happening. It's tied to all this whole machinery of self-concern, you know, anxiety about the future and regret about the past and worries about what people said of you or think of you or will think of you. And so much of our neurosis is taking place just in the, in the conversation we're having with ourselves. And that's all predicated on the legitimacy of this starting point of feeling like there's a self riding around in the head who, who is carried through from one moment to the next in life. That you are, you are the same person 
you were yesterday. So the, the thing that embarrassed you yesterday that you're now remembering and now feels terrible, it's the, the psychological continuity there and the, the durable continuity that seems to mandate that you suffer over precisely the thing that you were, that you were su- suffering over yesterday because you are that same self carried through moment to moment. And just that, have everybody watch Frozen and you can just let it go. <laughs> right, well, that, yes. Because I, I, yeah. I, I think the sense of self is actually something that's incredibly valuable. That, you know, our, we have a, a, a preservation motivation. We have a, a desire to understand the world that we inhabit. That mm-hmm. is, it, it may even be the case, uh, as, I've, as I've argued and others have, that there's no such thing as altruism in a true sense, but that you could have altruism from a purely selfish standpoint uh, yeah. and still do good. Yeah, but I, mean, I wouldn't call it. I mean, that, that begins to play with the boundaries of the, quote, self. I mean, the, so so if, the moment you begin to feel that your selfishness extends to everyone being happy, right, because you actually care about everyone, right, and you feel better when you see people smiling rather than, you know, weeping, if you extend the circle of your self-concern to everyone, well, then that's not normal selfishness. That's, that's you know, sainthood in, in a... If I'm doing it because sense. I feel bad, good when people smile, that doesn't mean I necessarily care about them. It means I might care about that good feeling that I get. Yeah, except the I get part is vulnerable to inspection. I mean, the sense that you, there's an I who's appropriating that in every moment is... It's just, it, it, it's a project which can be accomplished in, in a moment or, or, or you, know, you can fail to accomplish it after many years of looking, but there's... The sense that there is a, it's useful to, to define what we mean by self, because most people don't feel identical to their bodies. So when, when, I say, when I say the self doesn't exist, I'm not saying that people don't exist. I'm not saying that you know, nobody's here and you know, this is all an illusion. And, and there are contemplative and religious and spiritual traditions that can sound like they're saying something very much like that. I'm, I'm saying that the, the sense that we all have of being a subject in the head, riding around in the body as though it were a kind of vehicle, right? Because I mean, this really is most people's starting point. They don't feel truly coterminous with their bodies. They feel like they're in their head and that you know, their hands are down there in some sense. And that sense of being a subject in the head is vulnerable to inspection. You can lose that sense. And on one level, you can, you can just be identified with your body. I mean, that, that is actually progress simply to feel like a body in the world is different from the way most people feel. Most people are, are kind of, con- and this is what we're running into, most people are common sense dualists. They feel like the mind can't possibly be identical to the brain. The mind is something altogether different, and it just feels like it's in the head as a kind of, there's a sort of locus of attention that's emanating from the head. But this body is a machine that can malfunction, and it's changing over time, it's clearly not what I am. And I am probably a soul then. I'm probably spirit. I can probably drift off the brain at death. And, that's, and that sense, and all the ways in which that sense can be played with by fasting or prayer or meditation or psychedelics or getting crazy ideas that you find emotionally very animating, sort of adventures you can have in dualism are part of the problem here because you adventures in dualism should be the title of your next book (laughs) i didn't know if you want to jump in on that at all nothing to contribute yeah (laughs) i i i sit here and i listen to this and i and i i think there's like a four-hour 
fascinating for me conversation. You might, mm. might not think so much, because I have no problem with the idea that the mind is the brain. Uh, but I know that there are people who do. But, but, my, but, but it doesn't feel that way. I know. I know yeah. it doesn't feel that way. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, I don't know that it's necessary. And I don't know what the right path is. I don't know that, that for example, um, losing this sense of self could be a great thing. Well, or one thing not. I would add is that I, you lose it all the time because it, it actually isn't there. I mean, that's, this is, it's, you are losing it all the time. How can you, you are, lose something that's not there? It always seems there retrospectively, but when you're really paying attention to something, you know, you're, when you're so-called lost in your work or you're lost in some athletic task or you're just lost in thought, like you're, you're actually you're, you're thinking about something and you're not aware that you're thinking. This sense of, of our own kind of central presence in our heads is constantly being undercut by attention being diverted to something out in the world or to some, some experience. And you can become increasingly sensitive to how it's being interrupted. I would love to get to the truth, and I love the fact we're on the pursuit, but irrespective of what the truth is, Richard, something like consciousness, which we still, some would say we understand and some would say we don't. I I think we don't. Mm -hmm. But how, what would be the evolutionary advantage in the process by which we get to consciousness as we we have it, as we seem to have it, that, that might distinguish us from other animals? It's a, it's a big mystery because uh, you could build an animal which did all the sophisticated things animals have to do, hunting for food, um, avoiding predators, looking for mates, doing everything that an animal has to do in order to survive and propagate its genes. And I don't think it would have to be conscious at all. Right? I think it could all be done uh, in the way that a computer would do it. I mean, when you talk to Siri or, or Alexa, they sound conscious, but you know they're not. Um, and for, for an animal to survive with, with a nervous system, it doesn't, it seems to me, need to be conscious. And uh, I'm very glad I'm conscious, and I, I'm pretty sure you are as well. I, mean, I, think, I think other people... Um, I, I'm, I'm not a solipsist. Um, ah. But, but I, I, do, I, um, I, I do find it a bit of a mystery why, why we have consciousness at all. Yeah, I would agree. I, mean, I think it's... As I wrote somewhere, it's the one thing in this universe that can't be an illusion, including the universe. I mean, this universe could be a simulation on some alien hard drive. Or I think Descartes said something similar. Yeah. Although I got 40 emails last week that says we've proved that that's not true, and I don't necessarily yeah. buy those emails either. Right, yes, that's exactly what the simulators would say if you were... <laughs> uh, But I mean, consci- the consciousness as the, just the felt sense that something is going on, the, the fact that there's an experiential quality, whatever this is, whether you're a brain in a vat, whether you're in the matrix, whether consciousness is being produced by information processing in your head, uh, as seems reasonable to believe, consciousness is always the first fact before any other facts can be discussed. And it's also the, the most important thing in the universe. It's the only thing that makes at least in my view, it's the only thing that makes the universe important, the fact that the lights are on, the fact that it's possible for the lights to be on. If you told me there's a universe somewhere that's got stars and planets, but the the constants of of, of nature are tuned just a little awry so that conscious life is impossible, that is a deeply uninteresting 
universe, and it's consciousness is the only ground for any moral dimension to our lives, too. And yet, I, I'm with you in feeling that it's not clear that it does anything. It's not clear how it would be selected for, because in, I mean, if you just look at your own experience, everything that you're conscious of, anything that you seem to be consciously deciding or you know, any place where it seems that consciousness is necessary to integrate information behaviorally, you know, to have a complex goal, say, for someone to say to you, well, you should really get to the Orpheum Theater at 8 o'clock to, to hear this talk. For, you, for that to become a behavioral plan, let's just say that that is, in fact, something that can only be done consciously in apes like ourselves. Still, it's not clear why, well, as you said, it's not clear that that should be the only way that it, it gets accomplished. And, and we could easily build robots, one presumes, that could, that could do these things without it being something that it's like to be those robots. But even in our own case, if consciousness really is just what it is at the level of our neurophysiology, it's only effective in virtue of what it is at the level of neurophysiology. So the fact that there's a, a, a subjective side to it doesn't matter. I mean, the fact that, it, that you're having this experience now which again is the, is the most important thing in, in, in anyone's life, the experience side of it is not what is actually behaviorally effective if in fact consciousness is, yeah. at, has, a, has, a, has the other face, which is its neurophysiology and its information processing dynamics. Nicholas Humphrey suggested that um, the, uh, one of the most important things we have to do is to second-guess other people. We, we, we swim through a sea of... a, a, mm. a social sea. We, we, we have to make our way through very, very complicated relationships with other people, and we have to second-guess what they're going to do. All the time, we're, we're having to predict how this other person is going to react. And so he postulates what he calls the inner eye, which is looking inwards to yourself as an aid to second-guessing what the other person might do. You need this extra sense organ mm. um, to, to help you to predict the behavior of the other person. I still don't think that, right, that, that does it. I, somehow I wouldn't have been as surprised by the last presidential election if I was doing that <laughs> correctly. Yeah, and I was here before the election and predicted that there was no way Trump could win. And as somebody who occasionally pretends to read minds and make predictions for a living, boy, was that a mistake. Uh, I, I think what Richard's talking about is something that I've heard elsewhere is the, in, the intentional stance. What if it's the case that consciousness, which gives rise to this sense of self, uh, in a way that goes beyond mere self-reflection and consideration, leads us to connections with other people, and this is what provides the evolutionary benefit. But it also leads to something else that I thought we'd talk about, which is tribalism. Mm. This, our lives as individuals become merged, obviously, with our family. We have this immediate connection to our family, and then we extend this, and we extend the definition of family, and we begin to form tribes. And there was a time and a place where that may have been the best thing, is it the case that, I mean, obviously, these could all be side effects of just what happened, and, and I would 
think that I'm, I'd be okay with the idea that consciousness and tribalism and everything are, are side effects of what happened. You know, there doesn't have to be a guiding hand. But in the process, in viewing it from natural selection, what were the benefits of tribalism and have we actually outgrown them or are we maybe taking a step back? Well, if I'm not mistaken, Richard, I think altruism, the, the, the evolutionary rationale for altruism really only makes sense in a tribal context. So that like one of, one of the silver linings of internecine tribal conflict was that in-group altruism got selected for. Um, I don't know if there's any recent work on that, but that's, that was my reading of things. Yes. Now, that's not to say that we're stuck, with, we're stuck with tribalism as the only rationale for altruism, but in terms of how apes like ourselves became as altruistic as we are, it's thought that, that competition among tribes was um, the basis Well, I the... suppose a Darwinian view of altruism would go back to a time when we lived in small tribal groups, uh, and um, there were two things about living in these small groups. What, one was that you were completely surrounded by kin, cousins, second cousins, siblings, nephews and nieces, and so on. And so there would have been a Darwinian incentive to altruism towards anybody you meet, because anybody you meet is a member of your own village, your own tribe, your own, your own clan. And the second thing, the, the other Darwinian engine, motor of altruism, is reciprocation. And reciprocation depends, or largely depends, upon encountering the same individual again and again. Yeah. And that again happens within the village, within the, within the band, within the tribe. So... Um, there would have been a selection pressure in favor of within-group altruism and out-group hostility, xenophobia. Uh, so we, we, can, we can expect that there, that there should be this tendency to despise the out-group the out and to be altruistic and cooperative with the familiar in-group. And that could be defined as people you've known on your life, people you were brought up with, people who look like you. Mm. There are all sorts of ways in which the rule of thumb for how to behave could have latched on. And it's a pretty depressing outlook when we've moved out of our tribal past and moved into big cities where we're no longer in small tribal groups. But we still have the same rules of thumb which work, and that is a good thing. We have a rule of thumb that says just in general, be nice to anybody, empathize with, with any, anybody, because in the distant past, anybody would have been defined as your own tribe, your own, your own clan, your own kin group, your own reciprocation group. So I wonder if it's to our benefit to... There's a couple of potential ways to go there. One is to get everybody to realize that everybody still is part of our clan, that we, we are one human clan. Hmm. Uh, I don't know... I don't have the magic solution to, to end the various divisions. Uh, but the others, maybe to get people to recognize that they can be a part of a number of different clans that overlap. This, this is how we build societies. Right. You know, I care more about my immediate family than I do my neighborhood, but I care more about my neighborhood than, than I do you know, the broader world. But I can't diminish my, my caring for things outside my scope to zero because we know that we have an an impact on each other, even at great, great distances. Peter Singer wrote a book called The Expanding Circle, yeah, yeah. Uh, in which he starts out by talking about this, 
this in-group, kin, kin group, and then talks about the altruism broadening itself out to um, wider and wider and wider groups. And he would, would like that to include non-human animals as well, uh, that, that psychologically we can extend our tribal loyalty to um, all sentient beings. Yeah. yeah. There were some folks out front with pictures of... If you'd like to continue listening to this podcast, you'll need to subscribe at samharris.org. You'll get access to all full-length episodes of the Making Sense podcast and to other subscriber-only content, including bonus episodes and AMAs and the conversations I've been having on the Waking Up app. The Making Sense podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support. And you can subscribe now at samharris.org.